is stronger than our sin. Hallelujah. Thank you, House of Praise, for just ministering to us and with us. Often, as we think about God's strength, we describe that in ways that are positive. We say, God did this for me. He provided this for me. And we use um, the positive angle to talk about God's greatness. And nothing wrong with that. But this morning, I want to ask you to engage your mind in, a re- in, in, a re- in reverse for a minute. And I want you to begin to ask yourself, what am I thankful for that God hasn't done? Okay? I'm glad God didn't. And start finishing the phrase. It may take you most of the message because that's something we don't do much of. We're consistently, I'm glad God did this and I'm glad he did that. They never said, I'm glad God didn't and finish the phrase. Say something I'm glad God didn't do. Approximately 1965, a lady by the name of Norma Smith was in the hospital. And she was there because she had a degenerative hip disease or issue. And some of the details are a little sketchy to me. All I know is that she was in there for the next morning. They are going to amputate her hip. She had just had a boy. And they said, you know, your childbearing days are over. We need to get rid of this leg. So it doesn't spread. So um, she prayed and she said, God, I don't want to lose my leg. And that night the Lord didn't see fit to let the doctors proceed with surgery. Instead, he came to her hospital room there in Michigan. And in what is nothing but a supernatural gift from the Lord, he healed her. And she recalls, she said, I remember waking up and knowing that God was in that room. And he touched my hip and he healed me. The next morning, the doctors came in and they were prepping her for surgery. And long story short, they said, Norma, we're not going to take this leg off. You're, you're okay. I'm glad God didn't let them go through that because she had a child in 1966, and that child's name was Julie. And in 1988, I married that girl named Julie. See, I'm glad God didn't let that disease keep on going. I'm really glad, amen. I got four kids who were glad. Amen on the front row right here. You know, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what did God not do that I am so glad? Let me show you a verse in Jonah that describes something God didn't do. Uh, And the Ninevites were really glad about it too. Jonah 3, verse 10. Take your Bibles and find that. You were probably already there because we've been in Jonah since the first Sunday of January. And what a great time God has given us in this book. So many of you are responding in such positive ways. And it's just good to hear about more and more people who are stopping their running from the Lord and instead are are turning and and following the Lord. Well, here in Jonah 3.10, we have a wonderful explanation of God's mercy. Now, your finger and your eyes are on Jonah 3.10, but can I just give you a, a brief theological update? Let me give you a seminary in one minute. Jonah 3 is all about mercy. We're going to see that in a minute. It's what God did not do. And that is the essence of mercy. If you want a quick definition of mercy, it's what God did not do. In other words, you and I deserve hell. We deserve to be judged for our sin, but God did not take that out on us 
Instead, he took his wrath out on his son, Jesus. Are you with me? That's some mercy. Jonah 2 is all about grace. Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. What did God give Jonah in chapter 2? He gave him a great big old fish. Give him a big old second chance. Are you with me? He provided this fish that Jonah didn't earn or ask for or, or necessarily uh, have anything to do with. It just, God provided it. That's grace. When you get something you don't deserve, that's grace. And when you don't get something that you really do deserve, that's mercy. That's Jonah 2 and Jonah 3. Theology in 60 seconds. Now let's look at Jonah 3.10 at a more definitive understanding of the concept of mercy, what God didn't do. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, they refer to the Ninevites, from the king to the peasant, from the greatest to the least. You can look back at the previous nine verses to kind of get the gist of that. When God saw what they did, and by the way, class, what did they do in one word from last week? Very good, almost as good as 830, but we'll give you about a B plus on that. They repented. And what is repentance? Look with me at the next phrase of Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. What an awesome definition of repentance. Remember last week? We're going this way. We put the brakes on. We see we're wrong. We repent. We say, God, I'm sorry. You're right. And we make a U-turn and we go the other direction. Repentance is a change of the mind and a change of the life. It's mental and physical change acts. The Ninevites did that. And in response, this is, this is just incredible what God did. Look what it says. He had compassion. The Hebrew, there it is, the Hebrew word there is relent. It's very similar to the word turn in verse 10. And the word turn used previously in chapter 3. In fact, in the King James Version, you may actually have the word turn. Some of your writers will say, God turned from his anger. In other words, he relented. He could have gone the full extent of his, of his judgment. He could have. But when he saw their repentance, it activated his mercy. Now watch this. And his mercy caused him to stop short of what he righteously and justifiably could have done. But God's mercy triumphed over the judgment. And it says he had compassion. Look what the next phrase says. And he did not. Do you love that phrase? Here's something God didn't do. He did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, as I told you last week, my personal opinion is that Jonah gave more than those eight English words we have delivered in the message in Jonah 3. They're five Hebrew words. I, I believe he probably gave them more than we have on record here. I believe he talked to them about how to repent. I think he talked to them about what God was looking for and about his God and what God would do if they would repent within this 40 days. I believe they took that posture possibly on the end of day one. The king heard about it. He responded by making a national decree. The whole nation is in a posture of repentance. And I tend to think they stayed that way for several days. And they began to realize, you know, is God going to carry you through at the end of 40? Are we doomed? Is our city history? I think at the end of 40 days, God said, you know what? I will bring my judgment. I'll stop short of what I could righteously do. And I will show compassion and not destroy the city. That's what I think happened. And I, I, that's the power of of the mercy and compassion of God. Now, I want to be frank with you here. This is something 
somewhat difficult to get your hands around. You know why? Because in some people's minds, they like to say, well, God changed his mind. I'm not comfortable saying that. I'm not saying that it's wrong if you believe that. My personal opinion is God didn't change his mind. His mercy just caused him to stop short of what he righteously and justifiably could have done. He was going down path A, and would he have been God still to say, I'm going to go to path A till the end of it and judge and punish? Yes. But for some reason, repentance, watch this church, watch this. Repentance does something in the nature of God. He is a compassionate God. The verse we read, gracious and righteous. In other words, he's not unjust to stop his judgment and pursue a path of mercy. He's gracious and righteous. And somewhere in the character of God, repentance somehow activates the mercy of God in a way that it allows him to stop short of judgment. When he wouldn't have to and doesn't necessarily uh, have to, he still does because he's so awesome and just and righteous and merciful and gracious. Somehow God's mercy causes him to stop short of what he could righteously and justifiably do. Aren't you glad there are times God doesn't do something in your life? And I am. First and foremost, I'm just glad God didn't send me to hell. Now, that may not be a PC word to you, but you might want to get used to it. Because hell is the end result of not believing. Separation from God is, the, is how sin is paid for if we choose not to believe in Jesus. No, God doesn't send anyone there. We choose to go there by not believing. But when we believe, then God doesn't go through with the full extent of judgment. His mercy intervenes. His compassion is great. And instead of condemnation... We now, as Romans says, we are not under condemnation, but we are free. I'm so glad God didn't send me to hell. You see, there are times God's mercy triumphs over judgment. You say, Todd, that's an odd way to put it. Well, I didn't think of it. It comes from the book of James. In fact, you ought to make a note of this. James 2, I think it's verse 13. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the part I don't want to get my hands around sometimes is what activates that mercy? What causes God's mercy to suddenly be stronger than this path A to judgment? My, my best guess, biblically and theologically, is that repentance seems to do something to the nature of God that causes His mercy to step in when judgment was really all you were looking at previously. Do I understand that totally? No, and I'm okay with not understanding it, by the way. I can't grasp all of it but i know that when i'm on that path a and god calls me to repentance man i should put the brakes on stop and turn back to god and pray for mercy and then let god be god and pray and hope that he will do exactly what he did in the Bible. he will not judge me now to help you uh, understand this passage in this singular verse in the best way possible write down three words would you write down repentance compassion and mercy. They just kind of show you the progression of Jonah 3.10. That there was this repentant posture by the Ninevites. It seemed to, and I'll use the phrase, stir up. It seemed to, to catch God's attention. I'm not a real fan of that word, but I think you know my heartbeat in this. And so God suddenly, compassion just came out of him. He is a compassionate God. And that was shown in how he had mercy even when he could have shown judgment. Now, that's, that's perhaps easy to say and explain, but
But sometimes we get a better understanding of things when we see it played out in Scripture in another place. And I want to take you to at least three other places briefly and show you where God relented and did not do something he could have righteously and justifiably done. Two of them happened in the Old Testament to his children, the people of Israel. Look at Exodus 32 for a moment. And I want to be up front with you and tell you that I probably won't explain these perfectly. These are incredibly deep scriptures that I'm still trying to kind of get my hands around. Um, But I just want to read them to you and have you understand them. The first one's in Exodus 32. It's the story of the, the golden calf. You remember when Moses went to the mountain and the children of Israel thought he's not back. It's been several weeks. I guess he's toast. He must have angered God. And so God just kept him up there and something's wrong. And so their next leader, who didn't have much of a spine, apparently, gave in to their calls for an idol. And they began to engage in idolatry, worshiping a golden calf. Well, it really angered God and it worried Moses so much so that when they both became aware of it, God said to Moses, listen, Moses, I'm just going to get rid of all these people. They're a stiff-necked people. And Moses went to bat for his people. And by the way, the mark of humility is when you can turn down an awesome offer that would benefit you for the sake of someone else. And God said to Moses, hey, listen, I'll just destroy all these people and I'll start over with you, Moses. Now, if you're a human and you hear that, I mean, that's like, uh, it puffs up your pride, doesn't it? I have no doubt Moses thought, man, I could be the beginning. I could be the starting point. But Moses, the Bible says, the most humble man that ever lived. You know why? Because he could look at things like that and say, God, listen, we don't want to give the Egyptians room to to blame, to say that you brought your children here just to kill them. And I'm not sure how you converse with God like that. Again, this is a portion of Scripture that's, that's tough. All I can say is that verse 14 of chapter 32 is an awesome verse. It shows us something God didn't do. Look what it says. Exodus 32:14. Then the Lord relented. Same Hebrew word here. Has the idea of turning. Not caring to the full extent something that you righteously could. The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Isn't that awesome? And if you're an Israelite in this day and age, you just said, Amen, hallelujah, glory to God. Because he righteously and justly could have ended it. But he didn't. He could have righteously and justly ended it in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Look over there. And I want to encourage you to read all around these, these key verses in your small group, in your lighthouse, your family over dinner, or perhaps in your different studies, because the context will give a lot more meaning to this. I'm just showing you some key verses. Numbers 14, about verse 20. These four words are synonymous with what he did in Exodus 32. Look at Numbers 14, 20, which is the Lord's response after the spies came back from the land. And instead of saying, Lord, we've heard your call to go, we will obey They instead said, no, uh, we can't do this. The land is just too impossible. There are giants. And ten of those spies says, man, it's impossible. Two of them said, we can't. It angered God. He said, you you don't believe. You don't have faith. So he said to Moses, listen, why don't I start over with you? Again, Moses intercedes for the people. He says, God, no. How that works is probably beyond my finite mind, but I love verse 20 of Numbers 14. Are you there with me? The Lord replied, I have forgiven them. Isn't that awesome? So he was not going to destroy them. Now, 
I want you to see something. As you read the chapter, you'll see that, that God did actually punish them. All those men above a certain age, instead of going to the promised land, they died in 40 years of wanderings. But God did not do what He originally intended to do. He didn't let His judgment be carried out to the full extent. His mercy intervened. Man, that's a... I may not grasp all that, but I'm sure thankful for it. Amen? Where they didn't get what they really deserved. There's another example in the New Testament. Look over at Luke 22. This one has very little textual record to go on. But I want to take a minute and expand on it because I think we can get an insight into the heart of God and into the life of Christ in this singular verse that describes an interaction between Peter and Jesus. Look at Luke 22. The verse I'll draw your attention to is verse 61. It's the verse that describes how Jesus looked at Peter after he denied him three times. And they were... They were uh, Denials that increased in intensity. He denied him once, denied him twice, denied him three times. Verse 60 says that after this happened, as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And of course, Peter knew what that meant. He had heard the Lord prophesy about this coming denial. Look at the next part of verse, look at verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And that's all the textual record we have about this encounter. I don't know what took place in that look. I think the word straight indicates that there was a very penetrating gaze between the Lord and Peter. And oddly enough, this denial was not, you know, at a long distance. They were in close proximity. Close enough to where the Lord could catch Peter's eye and put a serious gaze upon him. Now, if I were to have been in charge of the situation, my gaze would have been like, okay, Peter... I'm done with you. We've gone through the foot washing thing where you tried to rebel and you had your own idea about that. We've gone through three denials. Hey, Peter, here's a gaze that says I'm finding another fisherman. But for some reason, Jesus didn't do what he could have done. And in some degree, in my spiritual imagination, he didn't do maybe what he should have done. I don't know how to say that rightly, but I mean, Peter deserved probably worse than he got. Didn't like all of us. Instead, the Lord looked at him. And somewhere in that look, I think there was this thought, this idea that Peter understood, you know what? It's not over. I mean, think about those words, guys. Listen to me. It's not over. I can't prove that textually. So I'm not going to tell you that that happened. But my gut feeling is when Peter saw the eyes of Jesus, he didn't see, I'm done. He saw, it's not over. And the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Sure, there was disappointment. Sure, there was Peter, this is wrong. But it wasn't the end. In other words, he didn't get the immediate judgment that he probably should have gotten. Don't forget, this is on the hills of Judas, who also sold the Lord out a little more visibly and a little more intensely. He went out and hanged himself. Peter here is on the same path of denial. But he gets a gaze from Jesus that says, Peter, it's not over. Peter went out and responded in repentance. And guess what? Peter got a second chance. The mercy and grace of God in the life of Peter. Three times, twice in the Israelites' existence, and at least once with Peter, God could have done something. And he didn't. Aren't you glad that God sometimes stops short of what he could do? Aren't you glad his mercy triumphs over judgment? And in his sovereign plan, 
He allows our repentance to activate mercy and compassion. And the ones who benefit are you and me. God didn't do to the Ninevites what he could have. And they were glad he did. I'm glad in my life he didn't do some things. And I'm sure you're glad the same way. Can I show you one more verse that kind of puts a real succinct um, summary on this? Look at Romans 11. Just an incredible verse that talks about the mercy of God. And then we're going to wrap up here just in a few minutes. A, A wonderful verse that talks about the mercy of God and how sovereign he is in dispensing it. Romans 11, verse 32, I want to draw your attention to. Now, let me give you some background on this, okay? So just stay plugged in and engaged. This verse is, is wrapping up about three chapters of intense theological language in which Paul describes how the Jews and the Gentiles all have equal opportunity. In other words, one's not better than the other. The Jews don't get a, a leg up because they were God's chosen people. Because they rejected Jesus, they don't get a leg down just because now the kingdom is open to the Gentiles. He's saying, listen, God has worked in both situations to bring everyone to the place where they need him. And look at this verse then. And you need to read all three chapters to kind of get the full extent of that. But look what he says here in verse 32. What an awesome verse. Verse 32. For God has bound all men over to disobedience. It's an equal playing field when it comes to sin. You see that? We're all bound by disobedience. No one can say, well, I've been better than you. doesn't matter. One sin puts us all in the same playing field. We've got an inherent sin problem in our DNA. We were born in sin. So we're, it's, it's even. It's, it's level playing field. No matter Jew or Gentile, we've got a sin problem that somebody's got to deal with. Guess how God deals with it. Look at the next part of the verse. So that he may have mercy on them all. That's right. The Jews don't get more mercy because they were first chosen. The Gentiles don't get more mercy because perhaps they responded differently. Guess what? God has worked all this out over this historical redemptive plan. He's worked it all out so that all who believe will be shown mercy. Listen very carefully. This does not teach universalism. Universalism is the belief that in the end everybody's saved anyway. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that all who believe can be saved. And that's a distinct difference. In fact, the word all here in verse 32 actually refers to the, to the two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can be saved. Believing and trusting in Jesus Christ is how the mercy of God is activated so that his judgment is stopped short. So no matter who you are, you can be saved. It's equal Access Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's how, that's how a level the mercy of God is, so to speak. doesn't matter who you are, what race you are, where you come from, what you drive, or where you live. The mercy of God is accessible to everyone. And the only difference between the person who experiences the judgment of sin in full degree and the person who experiences the mercy of God is the one word belief. Remember the Ninevites? They trusted God. Remember Jonah 3? They showed that by repenting. And then, then God relented. The same thing is true in 2009. Old Jehovah here 
He's headed straight to hell. That's what his sin deserves. But he trusts God. Somewhere on this path to judgment, he trusts God. God then lets his mercy intervene and he saves him. Old Bill over here decides, you know what? I don't believe half that. It's not true. He just continues headlong in a judgment and pays for his sin in hell. The only difference is God's mercy intervened to the person who in repentance and faith trusted Jesus. See, that's how we understand what God doesn't do. That's how you experience it. You turn to God. You repent. And then God doesn't do what He righteously and justly could do. He doesn't send people to hell. Amen? To help you respond to the mercy of God, to help you kind of understand this in a practical way, and I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I want you to take your worship folder, and there is a card on there that I'm going to ask you to, to begin to think about because I've already prompted you a little bit thinking about, okay, what is something I'm thankful for that God didn't do? Well, I've given you two circles, kind of like the no entrance diagrams you've seen on different signs at times. I've drawn a couple of them for you. And I want to walk you through them briefly, then we're going to wrap up today by all of us responding to the mercy of God. This is one of our intentional response Sundays. And I'll be asking everyone in the room just to make a simple response to God's mercy. You don't have to, you're right. I wouldn't come back there and force you. But I want to ask you to participate because I think it's good for us to respond to God's mercy. Now, there's two circles there. The first one has the word hell already written in it, doesn't it? And most of you here are probably like, man, Todd, I'm glad God didn't send me to hell. I'm with you in your corner. Amen. But there may be someone here this morning who's like, Todd, I didn't know that you could avoid hell by just believing and trusting God. Well, I'm here with some good news this morning. The way to avoid hell is to believe in Jesus. He's the way out of hell. In fact, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. And perhaps you've been attending First Family for, First Family for a number of weeks, or maybe it's your first week. And you're thinking, okay, I've heard this thing about believing the gospel or taking your stand on it, trusting Jesus. Todd, if that's the way out of hell, if that's the only way to be saved, this morning I'm in. Then can I ask you right where you were seated, just to let God hear the cry of your heart. In fact, right now, just say, dear God, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Please save me, almighty God. I believe in his death and his resurrection. Save me, God. Just say those words. Now, there's nothing magical in words. Are you with me? It's not like some magic potion thing that, you know, woo, that's not what we're talking about. It's the cry of the heart that's rooted in repentance and faith. So it's not magical, but it is supernatural. And the Holy Spirit of God will move upon you and bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life when you repent of your sin and trust Jesus as the only way. Can I say in all kindness here, but I, and you know my passion for clarity. Please listen very carefully, church. There is no other way to be saved. The Bible speaks of only one way, and that is by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And I know that sometimes when we say that, folks are like, well, Todd, I got baptized when I was three months old, and they told me for years I was saved. No personal offense here, but the truth that God teaches is that Jesus is the only way. And by believing in His name, we're no longer condemned. You may have heard that going to church or giving money 
All of those ideas are man-made. The only scriptural mandate for eternal life is believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And I say that to you humbly, but I say it to you very clearly. If you're here this morning lost and trusting things that are, that are false, I beg you to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. Only in Him are we saved. That's the only way out of hell. Watch this, church. That's the only way for God's mercy to stop short of what would be just and righteous judgment. So this morning, if, if you're saying, Todd, this morning I take my stand on the gospel for the first time. Prior to today, I have not believed, but I today believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, and I accept Him. But I just want you to write your name to the left of that circle with the word hell in it, because guess what? Today, you can say, God's He's not sending me to hell. Now granted, God doesn't send folks to hell. I say that to kind of in our vernacular. But you're not going to, here's something that's not going to happen. You will not experience the judgment of God on sin because you believe. Just write your name in that blank and maybe put another circle around the hell circle. Just to emphasize today, I believe and I choose to follow Jesus. There's another circle on there as well. And there's no word in the middle of that one. You know why? Because that's what I want you to take the turn, to, the time to write in. For those here who are already believers, think. What, what's something in your life that you're glad God didn't do? Oh, yes, when He righteously and justly could have. But He didn't. Perhaps you were repentant when you knew the punishment was, you know, whatever. And you deserved it and it was just, but somehow in your repentance, God's mercy triumphed over the judgment. You say, Todd, I'm glad God didn't. I don't know what yours is, but I guarantee you got one. I heard this awesome story in first service. It's Marshall Lozada. She was talking about one night in high school. Vince, I don't know if you know, she shared this, so just hang with me, buddy. It's not about you per se, but uh, it was just she came forward crying. She goes, God's spirit, Todd, wants me to share this with you. And, and I just want to be sensitive to those kind of gifts being used in our body. And she shared a story about in high school when she came home and was just running from God, knew very little about him, and she sensed an overwhelming presence of God saying, Marcia, turn to me. Give me your life. And she said, no, God. I've done so many things that are wrong. I've got to make them right. I'll just pay for my sin. It's not even right for you to take all this. I've got to find a way to make it just. And she told God no. And she sat right here at the front with tears and said, Todd, God didn't listen to me. He hassled me for two years. He stayed on my trail. He didn't listen to me. He didn't let me go. But he kept wooing me and speaking to me. And she goes, about two years later, I finally said, hey, God, I can't make all this right. She said, in my humanness, I was thinking I had to kind of make it equal. I got to pay for what I've done. And finally, she said, I realized Jesus already did. And she goes, two years from that night, I became a Christian. Isn't that awesome? She said, I'm glad God didn't listen to me. <laughs> What's your story? I know you got one. That's what that second circle's for. So in a minute, I want to ask you all to stand, and we're going to make our way to the front here. Some of you may want to come to the cross and drop your card there. It's pretty crowded. So you may just want to put them across the front anywhere. That's fine. God knows your heart. But would you bring your card with one of these circles, either saying, today I believe, and I have become a Christian today, and I will trust Jesus, or write in your answer, 
and bring it. Just thank the Lord for something He's doing in your life that He didn't do when He probably could have. What do you say? We respond to the mercy of God when He didn't give us what we righteously and justly deserve. He said, hey, I tell you what, how about mercy instead of judgment? That's what repentance does for us. So my response is to say, Lord, find me repentant every day on my knees in a posture of humility, agreeing with God, confessing, so that His mercy will triumph over judgment. With that in mind, will you bow your heads with me first, family?